0: Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Hey Rock Point, I want to tell you about an exciting and significant moment that you can be a part of. This year marks the 50th year of Rock Point as a church. And we have been so excited at what God has done at this church in these last years and what God is going to do in the future. And so we want to invite you out. And on September 9th at 11 a.m., we're going to have a single service, our 50th anniversary celebration. And we hope to see you out there. It's going to be a time of food and games and fun after the service. You can invite your family. You can invite your friends and your neighbors. But we hope that we see you out as well, because it's going to be a time of celebration. It's going to be a time of recognition, all that God has done for us. And mostly, it's going to be a time of anticipation of what God is going to do in the days ahead. So we hope to see you out September 9th, 11 a.m., for our Rock Point 50th anniversary celebration. See you there.
1: In uh, your bulletin as well, you've got two uh, flyers that you can use as passing out. One of these is an invitation um, to welcome somebody. Uh, Studies have shown that if just someone asked them to come to church, someone would go to church. And so find that someone, give them an opportunity to be a part of the celebration. There's something else that you have also, and this is in regards to the series that we are kicking off today, and it's entitled, Can We Talk? It's conversations about Jesus. It's an excellent opportunity to bring somebody who is not a follower of Christ, frankly, um, over the next several weeks' time as we get into the series and have them join the conversation. To kick off uh, this gathering of friends that we're going to have over the next couple of weeks' time, we have Alicia Wood. Alicia Wood is not a stranger to us. She's practically family at this point in time, this being her third time here. Um, I could go through her education at Roberts Wesley College uh, to uh, Masters in Social Justice from Marygrove College to a whole string of other accolades I could mark for her. Um, her her uh, her capacity to have spoken at, at every place like Harvard University to Brown University to um, all these different schools and colleges and to speak to the elite of our nation about the things of God. She's part of Re- Robbie Zacharias International ministries, one of our strategic partners, um, one of the foremost, if not the foremost apologetics ministry uh, in the world, Um, intellectually approaching the things of faith to have those who are non-believers understand, and those who are already believers to truly understand what they believe in. And so she's one of their itinerant speakers as well. Um, But I think the most significant thing that I can say to you today is, A, she loves football, which I think is very cool. And uh, two is she's probably one of the most aggressive hockey players that you're ever going to find. And so I'm going to ask this morning that you would please very warmly welcome a good friend, Alicia Wood.
2: Good morning to you all. I really am grateful to be back. As uh, Pastor Randy was saying, this is my third year here. And as I got to meet some of you ahead of time, um, I was actually blessed to um, have some of you say, yeah, I remember when you were here before. So that's good. I didn't scare you off too much, which is wonderful. Um, But a a big thank you, of course, to Pastor Randy and and Mickey. I mean, you never take um, being able to share with you on a Sunday morning for granted. This is the flock that um, God has entrusted to your pastor. And I just thank him so much for year after year giving me the opportunity and trusting me um, with sharing with with you what the Lord has given me to share with you today. And uh, really always happy to be back here. Uh, Michigan did my my master's at Mary Grove, so some of you may be familiar with that. So I spent a lot of time in the Northwest Hub. Um, If you guys remember Northwest Airlines, I was actually living in Philadelphia at the time, and I flew out here one weekend a month and then flew right back. Uh, so I've slept in the Northwest hub. Now, obviously, it's a Delta hub. But years ago, it used to be Northwest, and and uh, so very familiar with with this kind of area, and uh, also happy to be in the north. I now live in the south. That's something new. For those of you who've seen me in previous years, I uh, originally from Rochester, New York, but last year when I was here, I lived in Boston, and this year I now live in Atlanta, so that's a a bit of a change for me, and it's funny when you get down there because they're all like, oh, the weather is amazing here, and everything is so great, and it's so cold up north, but then it's so humid and miserable in the summer that nobody goes outside and their roaches are this big and they're snakes and you're like, hey, my snow's not that bad, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, I think I'll, I can put up with the snow. So, you know, it, it's, it's been adjustment, but it, it's, it's been good. And uh, so thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to share with you a little bit on this whole topic of why Jesus. I want to let you know before I get started too that I'll be around for any questions that you have for me afterwards. Um, We had some people come um, after the first service. I'll always hang around because there's always things that I've said or things that I didn't say or topics that maybe that are not related to this at all that you have questions on. And I want to always give you the opportunity to spend that time asking me. I literally have a job where basically I get to talk to people um, who think that the whole Christianity thing is crazy, who thinks I'm a nut for uh, believing in Christianity. So it's kind of a cool job, because not everybody gets to do that kind of thing. You know, I, um, so when I meet somebody, they're like, yeah, I think this whole Christianity thing is crazy, and you guys believe in a bunch of fairy tales, I'm like, great, you're my new best friend, let's talk. And so we get to chat a little bit, and, and, and one thing I have found, is two things, I should say, not one, two things i found. Number one, people are willing to chat. Now, I spent the last four years in Boston, a lot of people may not think that that's true, but in Boston, at MIT, I had the greatest conversations at MIT. They had no problem talking to me about God as long as I was able to show them that I was a thinker. Because a lot of people think that Christians don't think. So there's the religious world, with Christianity is lumped into, and then there's the world of the thinkers and the people who believe in reason and people who believe in rationality. And those are two separate worlds. So when I come and say, hey, let me give you some evidence... Or let me tell you how this makes rational sense. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, yeah, we can totally engage. But the second thing I found is that oftentimes, non-Christians do not know what Christians believe. So when you say I'm a Christian, they think this, and you're thinking this. And so the joy that I get to do is to kind of bring those two worlds together. Let me tell you what the truth is about Christianity. Let me tell you what the truth is about the crucifixion, about the Bible, about morality, these kind of things. Because then people are like, oh, if you still want to reject it, that's up to you, but at least you're rejecting the truth and not the false image that has been presented. One of the things, of course, that's a big deal to Christianity is this whole idea of of Jesus. And I think it's a big deal, obviously. Christianity hinges on the resurrection. First Corinthians 15 lays that out for us. And so when we look at this whole idea of why Jesus, in a world in which there are so many other possibilities, we're answering this question not just for us, but for others who are asking the same thing. And as we look look at the world around us, we're probably pretty aware of the fact that we need something. Turn on the news. Go outside. Just live in this world and you will see and feel and experience that we as a country and as a global world are hurting. Several years ago, uh, in response to uh, if you think about the year 2016 and like the summertime of summertime frame, we were we were as a country were really fighting. There was tension um, going on with with injustices and oppression. There were certain things happening um, where where people were questioning whether or not we could trust police officers. And in the midst of all of this, we're having an election, and we have. Uh, you know, nominees that the country is so divided over. And so CNN, on Twitter, posted a message that I think was very interesting. And they said these four simple words, who can heal America? In response to what was going on, who can heal us? When you're asking for healing, you're implying that we're sick. You're implying that something is hurting. You're implying that there's something Wrong, And for a non-Christian organization to post something like that, who can heal us, I think is profound. Is there somebody out there that can deal with what's happening inside? Now, there's been many leaders who have wanted to do that. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Krishna, Buddha. There's a range of people. But I think Jesus stands out as somebody different than all of those. So if you'll turn with me this morning to John chapter 14. First, we'll start right at verse 1. John chapter 14, verse 1. My youth pastor used to say, if you're there, say, yo, I'm there. If you're still looking, say, hold up, hold up. So either category you're in, that's fine. You can let me know. John chapter 14, verse Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, the thing with these other religious leaders is that they offer different ways in which you could get healing. Some say you need to fix yourself. Some say you need to fix others. Some say, hey, you you actually can't be fixed. There's something just permanently wrong with you. Others say, hey, you don't need to be fixed. You're just fine. Some claim to be a unique messenger sent to bring enlightenment and wisdom to our world. And they most often claim some sort of religious affiliation of some sort, but none of them dare to claim something so profound as divinity. Jesus himself claims that there is only one way to healing, and it's found in him. In order to illustrate this, perhaps I can use a story from C.S. Lewis's, The Chronicles of Narnia. If I have any Narnia fans in here, you probably will find this story somewhat familiar. In this particular story, a girl named Jill was in Narnia, and so she was so incredibly thirsty when she heard from a great distance away a sound of water. Although she was wary of the lion, her thirst for the clear crystal water compelled her to ignore all risk and go seek that which she craved so much. So she cautiously, carefully walked in the direction of the sound until she came upon the stream, bright as glass and as close as a stone's throw away. But although her thirst was stronger than ever, she froze in fear for who she didn't expect to find at the source of her fulfillment. The water was the lion himself. Let's pick up her story from here. If you're thirsty, you may drink, said the lion. The voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? could I? Would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl and as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? said Jill. Oh I make no promise said the lion. "'Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, "'she had come a step nearer. "'Do you eat girls?' she said. "'I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, "'kings and emperors, cities and realms,' said the lion. "'I daren't come and drink,' said Jill. "'Then you will die of thirst,' said the lion. "'Oh, dear,' said Jill, coming another step nearer. "'I suppose I must go and look for another stream then.' "'There is no other stream,' said the lion.' Jesus wasn't interested in being a team player. He didn't come, newsflash, he didn't come to establish a democracy where we got equal voting rights And what he did. Sorry, guys, you don't get that privilege. He established his own set of rules. So when he was speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus calls himself the living water. A direct reference to how God describes himself in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 when he says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me the spring of living water and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God's people not only left him, but tried to replace him with something else. But Jesus is saying, come back. You know that living water that you've forsaken, that insatiable thirst that you have in life for something more? It can be found right here in me. The forsaken living water still flows, and it's closer than you ever dare to drink from. But don't bother looking anywhere else. As scared and as hesitant as you may be, there is no other stream. And he will soon, through his death, become the means by which we get to heaven. He is the way, and no one gets to the Father but through him. Now, this message is drastically different than any other prophet. If you were to to consider Muhammad, he was a man who claimed to be a, a prophet, one of many, including Abraham and and Moses and David and even Jesus. Uh, but he never he claimed to point the way. to to teach people to point the way. He himself never claimed to be it. In Buddhism, it teaches us that the ultimate goal is to eliminate suffering and desires. But Jesus' teachings show us that the ultimate goal of a Christian is to meet and commune with God face to face eternally, which is the ultimate fulfillment of our desires. But so often I hear people say to me, yeah, at least, you know, that's really cute and all. But this is kind of how I think about it. The way i see it is that everybody's on this path of truth and we're taking different pathways and we're believing in different gods and different things but you know what they're ultimately all leading to the same thing they're all leading up to the top of the mountain so maybe some paths go straight maybe some kind of zigzag or curve but there's many different ways to this truth in other words all these religions lead to god It isn't just this one truth that Jesus claims about how dare you, how arrogant of you to say something like that. But see, I find statements like this problematic. Because people who make statements like this really aren't understanding what the different belief systems teach. Christians are very adamant about Jesus being divine, him being crucified, raising from the dead. And Islam is very insistent that he never was crucified. That he was never crucified divine. In fact, it's considered blasphemous. So when you understand what the different belief systems say, then you would never say, hey, we're actually all on the same path. We just believe in different things, but we we'll all end up at the same place. No. A Muslim would find serious issue with the Christian saying, how dare you say God was a man like us? But also, the reason why this is a problematic kind of statement is because truth by definition is exclusive. In other words, If I say I'm standing here in Michigan, it means no matter how much my mouth tastes of pizza and pasta and amazing meatballs, I am not in Rome. Okay? In other words, if I am saying that I am here, that means it excludes the possibility of me being anywhere else. I can't be in Michigan and in Rome. So if there is a truth, it's going to exclude everything else that's contrary to it. So Jesus can't be divine and not be divine. He can't be crucified and not be crucified. One of them has to be wrong. But I get the statement. I get the idea that people are trying to get at, look, ultimately, we're all looking for truth. Ultimately, people aren't trying to follow a lie. They ultimately are looking for truth. But my question then is, what is truth? Or more specifically, who is truth? In other words, who is at the top of that mountain? What are we all climbing towards? Is it Allah? Is it Buddha? Is it the millions of Hindu gods? Is it no God? Nothing's up there. It's a waste of a journey and time and energy. As you can see, when we talk about, oh, that we're on the same pathway, it doesn't make all the possibilities and all the religions somehow unify just because we say that because we want to be compassionate and nice. So again, I ask you, which God is at the top? Which truth is at the top? Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, claims to have a new revelation of Christianity, well, new revelation, and it's that Christianity, the truth about Christianity was lost once the disciples died off. And so as he looked around him and saw the different denominations, he says none of them are true. And so he has an encounter that he believes, he has an encounter with God, and he talks about how he now brings a new message and forms a church, Church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints. But Joseph Smith never claimed to be the truth. He claimed to have new information that pointed to the truth. Mary Baker Eddy of Christian Science claimed to reveal a new truth about pain and suffering that it isn't really real. But she, she too, didn't even claim to be the truth, but to point people towards something else. Interestingly enough, Jesus himself claims to be the truth. And as we see in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. And in verse 14, it tells us the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The way to get to God was to accept Jesus, accept the truth that he taught, the truth about how God views you as somebody, as somebody who is worth dying for. How glad God plans to fix the broken relationship we have because of the things we've done between us and our Creator. That broken relationship, He's there to fix it. So if you follow Jesus and follow His truth, you don't even need to climb that mountain. In fact, this is why the mountain example is so problematic because it doesn't make sense in the Christian framework because what christianity says is, hey you know what stop climbing you've got it all backwards you think if i just keep doing enough good things or if i just keep doing my things on my own i will make my own way to truth i can do it myself i can find my way up that mountain and what christianity says i know uh-uh, you can't because no matter how much you climb you'll never reach the top and that's why jesus comes down And that's why Jesus comes down from that mountain to tell us and show us the way because we can't figure it out on our own. And so truth becomes flesh to live with us. Now, I've kind of given you some differences between different religions, but there's a lot of differences between the nature of the people and what they did in comparison to Jesus. I really like what the French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal says when he compares Jesus to Muhammad. This is what he says. He says there are differences between Jesus Christ and Muhammad. Muhammad was not foretold. Jesus Christ was foretold. (laughs) Muhammad slew. Jesus Christ caused his own to be slain. Muhammad forbade reading. The apostles ordered reading. In fact... The two are so opposed that if Muhammad took the way to succeed from a worldly point of view, Jesus Christ, from the same point of view, took the way to perish. Any man can do what Muhammad has done, for he performed no miracles. He was not foretold. No man can do what Christ has done. Muhammad performed no miracles. Jesus raised people from the dead. Muhammad never sacrificed himself. There would have been no point. Jesus came to die he could heal because he's the healer he could forgive because he was the forgiver no one has done or could do what christ has done and frankly not many claim to and this matters guys because what you believe in changes everything about how you live your life what you believe in impacts the way you see other people it impacts the way in which you choose to engage other people, the actions you have towards them, the things that you say, the decisions you make across the board, all come down to what you believe in, whether it's Christianity, Hinduism, atheism, whatever it might be, it all impacts you. And when we follow a lie, we follow something that's not true. It's awfully destructive. These next pictures are pictures that I took on a visit to Auschwitz concentration camp, or death camp, you should say, in Poland. Went there several years ago. Um, and many of you are probably familiar with Auschwitz. Over one million people lost their lives in this death camp. These are pictures drawn by kids who were prisoners in the death camp. The interesting thing about this is that kids, no matter whether they're playing in a playground or whether they're stuck in a concentration camp, draw the world around them that they experience. And this is what they saw. This was their world. And we look at this, and it makes us somber, and it makes us sad, but we, 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 we feel good about ourselves because we're like, you know what, thankfully, that's a thing of the past, though, because we're in 2018. And so we're so much smarter now. We don't fall into any of those foolish lies. All human are important. We don't, we don't like oppress other people. So we look at this and say, man, we're so glad that we are no longer in that place. And we look how far we've come. We have technology. We have computers. We're in outer space. We have iPhones. And so thankfully, this is of the past. But it most certainly is in reflection of us now. Well, several years ago, the Cincinnati Zoo had to shut down its Twitter account. Because of the harassment it received after the death of Harambe the gorilla. How many of you remember Harambe the gorilla? Okay. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with it, in April 2016, a, a young mother was there with, at the zoo with her three-year-old uh, son, and as a lot of three-year-old children do, they don't listen to mom, and he took off and somehow found himself in the gorilla cage or enclosure. And somebody pulled out their camera and videoed it. And at first, the gorilla kind of didn't really mess with him. And then grabbed him and kind of started dragging him through the water. Now, we have no idea what the gorilla was going to do and if it was going to be harmful or if it was going to hurt him. We have no idea. But the zoo was left in a position where they had to act, and they had to act quickly. Two options. Either they tranquilize the gorilla, but the challenge with that is if you tranquilize it, it makes it agitated before it goes to sleep. And they didn't risk, they didn't want to risk agitating the gorilla and causing harm to the boy. So their only option they believed they had to do was to shoot the gorilla dead. And that's what they did. What was interesting is after the death of the gorilla, many people took to social media to make their opinions known because apparently we care and asked. And so they got on social media and maybe to your surprise, maybe not to your surprise, they just ripped the mother to shreds. I want to take a look at some of the comments, but I want to tell you that these are paraphrases because I had to edit some of these for language and content. Uh, It's amazing the things that people will put on social media when they think they're anonymous or whatever, um, or or when they're not actually saying these things to somebody face-to-face. So listen to some of the things that people said in response to the zoo having to kill the gorilla. Because you are a really bad mom, a beautiful beast is dead. I'm hoping Child Protective Services gets involved. The boy shouldn't be returned to his mother. So lazy parents can't control their wild kids, and a beautiful, endangered animal gets shot and killed because of it? The first day of school is rough, but it's nothing compared to what Harambe experienced. I will never get over his loss. It seems that some gorillas make better parents than some parents. And to the mom, you're scum. You should have been shot. But it's 2018, guys. We're better than what they did in World War II. We see all people as valuable. We will never be like them. Really? Really? Because you see how what you believe in, whether you're living in 2018 or the 1940s, impacts how you see everything else around you. And when you follow a belief system that doesn't see all humans as valuable and doesn't see humans as more valuable than animals, then you are left with comments like this. It's one thing to say humans are all equal, it's another thing to say that you choose a human or an animal, because there are definitely some belief systems that don't encourage that. They just think we're just they have a little bit more consciousness than animals. But since we're all just a product of stardust, since we're all just dancing to our DNA, then really there's nothing that makes us much different than animals. There's no image of God. And so people who hold that view have an issue with the fact that the zoo had to shoot the gorilla to save the young boy's life. So the zoo had to remove their Twitter page because of the harassment they were experiencing. Meanwhile, Harambe had a Twitter page with 55,000 followers and a tagline saying, I, Harambe, am a victim but will never be forgotten. Now, I think the whole situation is sad. You know, nobody wants to see a gorilla shot, especially when it was in its own enclosure. But when we're faced with a situation and when we need to know who do we choose here, then what you believe in immediately steps into play. And so you got to know that whatever you're believing in is right. Because you never know when you'll be in a situation like that where you'll be pressed to have to carry out what you believe in. Pascal once said truth is so obscure in these times, and falsehood so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it and what happens is that we have people that are so confused as to when life is important and when life is life that before birth they advocate for taking life because they say it's not a life and then after birth they advocate for taking life because they say it's not a life worth saving who can heal America guys who can heal our globe who can heal our planet who can heal humanity Which person or prophet that I've mentioned says that value is bestowed on every human being because they are the reflection of their creator? Which person or prophet publicly advocates for the value of the lower class to be seen as equal to those of the respected upper class? Which person or prophet lived counter-culturally and challenged and rebuked people who mistreated others because they viewed them as lesser humans? Which person or prophet welcomed tax collectors prostitutes, rejects women, even though he was despised for doing that. I assure you it's only Jesus Christ who has done those things and who says the truth about you is that you are a beautiful being worth saving. So Jesus offers us the way, he offers us the truth, but he also offers us life, both here and beyond. I think we're all probably familiar with the word grace. Something that we use relatively common in probably our ordinary Christianese or Christian conversations. But I love, the, the definition of grace that I love the most is the idea that we are getting something we don't deserve or unmerited favor. Grace is getting something you don't deserve or unmerited favor. What are we getting that we don't deserve? We are getting, we are, being, we are freely being given relationship with God, we are getting a relationship with God that we don't deserve because of the things that we've done wrong have broken that relationship and we should be suffering the consequences for it. And what Christianity says is that we have a God who extends himself to give us something that we don't deserve because of Jesus' death on the cross. And because of what he's done, we as humans can live in relationship with our creator, not just now, but in the future. And the way that it was always intended, when you go back and you read Genesis, it talks about how God was with Adam and Eve in the, in the garden in the cool of the day. He was close. He was always supposed to be close. But yeah, what we've done has broken that. And God can't just ignore it if he ignores what we've done and says, hey, just don't worry about it, let's just kind of be cool again, then he's not a good judge. If I went over to your house and damaged things and stole things and you took me to court and the judge says, hey, Alicia, just don't you worry about it, you would say that is not a fair judge. He's not a just judge. God can't ignore it. He has to deal with the things that we've done wrong. Otherwise, he's no longer perfect. Otherwise, he's no longer good. And so... He says either you pay the penalty and the consequence of what you've done wrong, but that means you'll always be in this broken relationship with him, or he says, I'll pay it, and it will cost him everything. And that's why Christians see the cross as something beautiful. Because in death, in his death, we all get life. I saw a BC comic once that said, it was kind of making this joke about how, why Christians call uh, Good Friday, Good Friday. It's like Jesus' crucifixion date. Why are you calling that Good Friday? And the, and the comment, I'm just paraphrasing because I don't remember it verbatim, but the idea was basically like, well, if you deserve to be punished and somebody else took the punishment on your, in your behalf, wouldn't that be a good thing? Wouldn't that be something you'd be grateful for? I don't know if any of you are familiar with the gentleman named Brendan Manning. He was a Christian author, speaker, pastor. He wrote a couple books. One was the Ragamuffin Gospel. Another one was a book called All is Grace. And he struggled with alcoholism most of his adult life. His life is somewhat skewed in, I don't know, darkness, controversy, whatever you want to say. But he struggled with alcoholism. He just did. And uh, eventually it's what took his life. He suffered from something called wet brain, which basically... Um, is where your body doesn't get enough vitamin B1 and leads to vision coordination and balance problems and eventually psychosis. So eventually the alcoholism is what killed him. But he writes something in his memoir that I think is really helpful for us all. And I want to read you a little bit from his memoir, All Is Grace. He says, this book is by the one who thought he'd be further along by now, but he's not. It is by the inmate who promised the parole board he'd be good, but he wasn't. It is by the dim-eyed who showed the path to others but kept losing his way. It is by the wet brain who believed if a little wine is good for the stomach, then a lot is great. It is by the liar, tramp, and thief, otherwise known as the priest, speaker, and author. It is by the young at heart but old of bone who has led these days in a way he'd rather not go. Brendan struggled to get his life right and as a result of it was in a constant state of repentance. God, I'm sorry I've messed up. Forgive me. God, I'm sorry I've messed up. Forgive me. Some of you may relate to that. I know I've related to that. Where I feel disappointment. Where I feel the shame. Where I feel the regret. God, I just can't seem to get it right. But this is what makes grace so amazing, my friends is it was never about what you did anyways. It's all about what God does and what he did for us by sacrificing Jesus for us. Grace makes it so that our lives are not all about the worst things we've ever did, but about the best thing God ever did for us. Grace shifts the focus from how bad we are to how good he is. And he extends his grace to us because of Jesus' death. And that makes Jesus radically unique from any other prophet or person that claims to be religious, that claims to have enlightenment, that claims to have wisdom. And it's also very freeing for the Christian. Because in Islam, in order to get into paradise, your good deeds need to be greater than your bad deeds. But ultimately, you still don't know. You could die and be standing for Allah trying to get into paradise, and your good deeds, even though they may be greater than your bad deeds, he can still say no. Because ultimately in Islam, it's up to what they say, inshallah, it's up to the will of Allah what happens to you. And so a Muslim never knows, and they live their life always hoping I've prayed enough, always hoping I've done enough, always hoping I've given enough so that Allah will find me acceptable to Him. In Mormonism, you're told that salvation is granted um, to you by faith after all that you can do. Grace eliminates that. It says it was never about you. You can't climb high enough. So God comes down. So you don't have to worry about whether or not you've done enough to earn it because you never earned it in the first place, nor can you. And so the Christian lives with a sense of gratefulness and thankfulness, not because they're so great, but because when they fall on their face, And they turn and say, Lord, I'm done. I'm not doing it anymore. They know that they can receive forgiveness and relationship and that it's not something that they have to fear and live in fear about. Let's finish Brennan's introduction. It is by the wet brained who believed if a little wine is good for the stomach, (laughs) then a lot is great. Oh, I'm sorry. I keep skipping this one. This book is also. For the gentle ones who've lived among wolves. It is for those who've broken free of common or romping fields of love. It is for those who mourn, who've been mourning most of their lives, that they hang on to shall be comforted. It is for those who've dreamed of entertaining angels, but found instead a few friends of great price. It is for the younger and elder prodigals who've come to their senses again and again and again and again. It is for those who strain at pious piffle because they've been swallowed by mercy itself. This book is for myself and those who've been around the block enough times that we dare to whisper the ragamuffin's rumor, all is grace. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of your own works. so nobody can brag. And say, hey, I'm better than you. Our God loves me more. Grace is not cheap, but it's free because of Jesus. So, all paths only to God, friends. Rather, it's through one pathway that God comes down, and life is only found in that truth. That's why Jesus himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and nobody gets to the Father. In other words, no one can even make that climb but through me. Jesus never claims to be another name for God or another just an ordinary wise man. He claims to be God himself. And this powerful concept that there's a connection to God that is an essential part of our life here and in the future changes everything for the Christian. My grandmother was this adorable five foot zero lady. She uh, went up to about sixth grade in, in, in school, and I don't even think she finished that. And when I was growing up, my mother worked multiple jobs. She was a single mother, and so she took good care of me. And and so oftentimes I had to spend time at my grandmother's house overnight. And I remember as a kid waking up early in the morning and peering into my grandmother's room, and she would always be on her knees with her Bible open, praying over everybody she could think of, literally, everybody who came to her mind. She was in there for hours. And that Bible, I remember sometimes sitting next to her and watching her as she read that Bible. And then I would say to myself, you know, God, I don't really understand you like she does. Like, I don't love you like she does, but that just must be because I'm like eight or nine or something. But when I get older, then I'm going to get it, right? Well, several years ago, we noticed that my grandmother started leaving the stove on where she'd leave food in the oven and wouldn't remember last time she ate. So my aunt and I brought her to the doctor. And the doctor um, was going to evaluate her and kind of see if he could figure what was going on. And so he asked my aunt and I to leave, and he kept my grandmother in there and asked her a bunch of questions. He brought my aunt and I back in and said, well, guys, there's a bunch of things that could be, but it's most likely Alzheimer's. And I was pretty devastated, because you know, with grandparents, you know you know they're, that they're older and you'll have them for forever, but you never want to say goodbye. And so we went out to pay the bill, and my aunt is busy paying and taking care of those things, and I'm standing near my grandmother, and my grandmother says to me, "Alicia, how's your brother and sister?" And I said, "Oh, grandmother, they're fine. They're doing okay. They're in school." And I kind of walk off and I kind of just try and think and process through what's happening and I'm thinking to myself there's no way my grandmother understands any of this she wasn't the smartest lady by any means and about 10 seconds later she calls me she goes Alicia and I said yes grandma and she goes how are your brother and sister and the tears just came and it's like she snapped out of it or something but she came over and she just hugs me and says Alicia don't you worry about me oh I'm going to be just fine don't you worry about me when God's ready for me I'm ready to go like he will take care of me About a year and a half or two years after that, she was in a nursing home. And she was there for a little bit, and after about a year and a half or so, she stopped talking. Every once in a while, maybe she'd make a little bit of noise, but it was just, like, you didn't even know she was there. She kind of just sat in the chair. And I remember going to visit with my little sister, and her roommate would cry out, Nobody loves me. Nobody ever visits me. Nobody cares about me. I'm all by myself. I'm all alone. And... I'd call the nurses in and they would say, you're not alone. Your daughter comes to visit you every Saturday. She's always here. Don't you worry. And the nurse would leave and she would cry out again. My grandmother just sat there. And I'd read the Bible, that same Bible probably, to my grandmother. And uh, we'd pray. And as I was lowering her her bed back down, she started mumbling again. I kind of put my ear close to her just to listen. And as clear as day, as clear as day, I hear my grandmother go mumble, 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 thank the Lord, and mumble, mumble, mumble. The last three words I heard my grandmother say were thank the Lord. She passed away a few months later, and my aunt said to me, is there anything of hers that you want? So the only thing I want on my grandmother's is that Bible. I don't know my grandmother's state of mind and what prompted her to say that, but what I do know is that long ago she had implanted a life deep within her, a life that found a hope that was beyond this world, a life that wasn't limited. Or influence, or that didn't disappear based on the surrounding circumstances, no matter how bad they were. And so, even when she was at a point where her mind was losing its ability to function, the only thing that she could utter was "thank the Lord." I remember the first time I watched the movie Inception, I was thoroughly confused. But then I watched it a second time, and a third time, and then I started to get it, and then it was brilliant. What happened? What changed? Is that I knew the ending. The second, third, and fourth time that I watched that movie, I knew the ending. And because I knew the ending, it changed the way in which I experienced that movie. It changed the way in which I understood things. It changed the way in which I saw things. I understood the context differently. My grandmother knew her ending. And so no matter what she went through, No matter how dark her world was going to come, there was always light because of the life that had been put in her of Jesus Christ and where she placed her hope so many years ago. Several years ago, I was in a hotel room and just had CNN CNN on in the background and Anthony Bourdain, it's kind of ironic to share this story now, but Anthony Bourdain was on there being interviewed by Don Lemon. And in response to many of the things happening in our country, and the turmoil, and the stress, and the pain, and the brokenness, and the divisiveness, and the tension, Anthony Bourdain says to Don Lemon, he says, people are looking for a man on a horse to lead them out of this. Well, Anthony, I can't give you a man on a horse, but I can give you a man on a donkey who came to earth to tell us that there is a way, and there's a truth, and there's a life that can be found even in your most darkest of moments and when you know that life it changes the way you live this one because you know how this one ends now I know that I've said a lot of things and some things may have gone over your head or some things maybe were just hit you. I mean saying so, you know maybe I would love to know that hope maybe I would love to know life Because even though we're physically alive, it doesn't mean that we feel that in here. And I see that over and over in our culture today. I love how Christianity is so inviting and says, look, just believe. You want a relationship with God? Then receive it. Believe that Jesus himself is God, that he came here, that he died, that he rose from the dead, he paid the penalty of what you did wrong so you didn't have to do it. Just believe and accept his forgiveness. And then God can forgive you, and then he can reunite that relationship. But you have to receive that forgiveness first because he can't ignore what you've done.